Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with Nat Bullard, the Chief Content Officer of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, to explore the role real estate plays in climate change. Nat and I discuss definitive measures around reporting the energy efficiency of a building and how real estate owners can differentiate themselves in terms of a commitment to sustainability in a way that will allow them to continually redefine their relationship with tenants. So Nat, thank you so much for joining uh, from Washington, D.C. Yeah, man. Thanks Thanks for being here. And sorry, thank you for having me and uh, look forward to this conversation. Yeah. Um, Well, you've been an analyst in the space of energy and sustainability and kind of the the applications of that for different industries now for for a decade. Um, I'm curious to get your perspective on how that has changed and and also how you entered the industry and how your perspective has changed and the opportunities that that affords um, companies today. Sure. So I, I entered this with a, a, a fundamental interest in the built environment, for one thing. I, I actually did my undergraduate work not in the, the real study of architecture as a practitioner, but the history of architecture. And I then did some work overseas. I, I lived in Egypt as a teacher, and that gave me a sort of sense for international development and the fundamental challenges underneath a country that had energy poverty, food poverty, water security issues, heat and temperature issues, all these sorts of things that needed to be solved with big applications. Uh, So when I went to graduate school thereafter and I was studying international relations and energy, I was actually one of the few people at that time, mid 2000s, that was looking at these, looking at energy and natural resource economics at the same time. Uh, You found a lot of people that would be looking at one or the other. So energy economists tended to go work for an oil company. Natural resource economists tended to go work for an NGO. You had very few people sort of doing both. And by the time I finished that, which is 2006, we're at this moment in time where you had a commodity super cycle that started to get a lot of people interested in all, what they call at the time alternative energies. So a lot of biofuels, early stages of wind and solar and things like that. But you didn't have a lot of people with a, with a background in the market way of thinking about all of this. You had technologists. Uh, and you had people who were, again, like natural resource economists. But you didn't have a lot of people who were sort of knitting all those pieces together. And I was fortunate at that time to join a small analysis group based out of London. It's called New Energy Finance at the time. And that was the whole thesis of the, of the firm. It actually begun trying to be an investment fund, looking at investment opportunities at the sort of leading edge of new energy technologies. And the founder actually discovered that the biggest investment opportunity was actually proper information because it was so little understanding, so little apprehension of how you might get a market economy to solve all these things that had traditionally been market failures. And so did that for a couple of years, covering everything in the US from policy to biofuels, solar markets. Uh, We were fortunate enough as a company to be acquired in 2009 by Bloomberg, which gives you a little bit of a bigger footprint in terms of firm size, annual recurring revenue, uh, office space, things like that. 
And actually, I, I sort of took it on the road at that point. So in 2010, I was, uh, I was based in D.C. and moved to San Francisco. 2012, moved to Hong Kong, stayed there for four years, and have since been back here on the East Coast uh, ever since then. And what's interesting in that whole time is that, like, I'm not doing the same, I'm doing the same fundamental type of work. You know, I think about things, write about them, speak to clients, help them negotiate and navigate ideas and what change might look like. But I'm talking about totally different stuff. All the things that I studied in that first wave and wrote about, those were, those were all, I would call them outputs. They've been solved in a sense, right? Like they've, they've got technology cost curves in place where wind, solar, and batteries are competitive in pretty much any power market in the world. And they're now the inputs to the next wave of things that's coming along that needs solving. So that's things like road transportation. But then we've got this whole other wave of stuff that really needs fixing. Real estate certainly is going to be hard to decarbonize, but things like industrial heat, aviation, shipping, uh, all kinds of things of applications of the world of materials and food, all this sort of stuff that is a long way away from being solved. But as I said, the, the outputs from that phase one, all these successful things that the companies you look at, your portfolio companies or people who are pitching you, don't even need to think about anymore, like the cost of a battery or the efficiency of a solar panel or you know, the scale of a wind turbine. They don't have to worry about that. And where 15 years ago, they would have been raising money to actually tool up a factory or do fundamental science or something like that, that's no longer an issue. So those outputs are now inputs and that makes this time I think super exciting. Yeah, and I, I want to talk more about that because that's so much of what you know we look to focus on, which is there's right. it almost feels like as you said, there's this precedent technology. It's like the the a lot of the code has already been built, right? Or a lot of the code right. languages have already been built. That's and now right. we're building almost the application layer that connects that precedent technology into established industries that have never heretofore thought about sustainability or energy and real estate being kind of a clear example of that. Precedent technologies, it's a very elegant phrase that I'll probably borrow at some point, but that's the perfect way to think about it. I mean, like the, the analog for this for real estate would be, imagine, imagine if in order to do a large commercial or mixed building structure, you had to do fundamental glass technology first. Right. <laughs> like that, there was a time when that was necessary, right? Yeah. But uh, that's, that's no longer the case. That's something that has been in a good way commoditized and has its own like righteously efficient uh, R&D facility behind it, a very capital efficient structure where impossible to make stuff. And it's, and it's competitive. You know, there's a market for that all around the world. And so it's no longer something that people really need to be going and doing. There are companies that are probably doing fundamental material science in glass and in other building technologies. But some of those might come your way, you know, and might be something you're pitching, but they're also, they've got a pretty big industrial world that they can tap into already. They've got companies that know what to do with them and where. Yeah. And, and I'm curious that just kind of backing up a little bit now. Um, so Bloomberg uh, yep. just announced Bloomberg Green earlier this That's year. Right. That's right. That's obviously a, a, you know, huge initiative for the firm, it sounds like. And can you just walk me through the background as to why that was a launch, launched as a new initiative for Bloomberg. It's, it's, a, it's, a nice, it's a nice thing to have launched and at a very interesting time to do it. So the thesis behind it is that, that every, every era had its own magazine of, of note, right? So uh, if you take the middle of the American century, Time Magazine was the magazine of the American century. 
And the magazine of the age of globalization was The Economist. And the magazine, so to speak, for the age of climate change is hopefully going to be Bloomberg Green. So it's meant to look at this sort of system of systems approach of what's happening. So you can't, you can't just talk about climate science. You need to talk about policy, but you also need to talk about economics and the business of making those things happen. And you need to talk about how these big systems interact with each other in ways that previously people might not have really looked at very much. Uh, and it's something that Bloomberg, I hope, is pretty well suited for because we're pretty rigorous on our data side of the world, right? Like that's, that's bread and butter for us. But also I think we're, we're dedicated to drilling down on what this means for the investor dollar. The world is full of capital, but, it, but good capital is, if not scarce, that it's at least selective. And so having a way of thinking about where to allocate money in a world where everything is changing fairly profoundly and fairly deeply in a lot of different places at once means that there's a good spot to be doing this kind of work. And so my role within it is just the, you know, I'm just a weekly. I write, I write every week, but the, the audience size is pleasingly decent at this point. We're about 85,000 people that read the newsletter, receive the newsletter every week. And uh, it's, a, it's a great feedback loop for me to, to see what people are interested in. I, I have kind of free reign to write about the things that I feel are relevant. Uh, my internal lens has always been, tell me what's unexpected about this. Like, what, what, tell me what I didn't know already. And that, I think, is actually what's most important when you've got this both rapid pace of change in a lot of ways, but underlying systems that are huge. Like, they're all multi-trillion dollars in assets. In many cases, they're multi-trillions of dollars in annual revenue. And so I'm trying to keep it fresh on top of that while also be aware of the scope and scale of what's changing underneath. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, it sounds like the, the logic of starting Bloomberg Green is analogous to, in some ways, my perspective and how I now look at the real estate industry, right? Like I, I, I started um, Fifth Wall with a thesis that technology was colliding with real estate, right. two industries that Bloomberg obviously covers. Right. But what wasn't intuitively obvious to me at the time was that there's a different aperture to see that collision and that the role that real estate and the built world plays in the world's energy consumption is profound. Um, right. And so I started kind of hearing that in bits and pieces, these kind of breadcrumbs that would be left either by CEOs of real estate companies or emerging new technologies. And now I feel like it's a whole different lens. It's like I've, I've changed the aperture of how I look at that collision where I see it increasingly through, through the energy and through the sustainability lens. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of people in my position where you, you're sitting on a frontier and you can view that frontier in a new way through the lens of sustainability right. because I think you have to nowadays. Right. And it's hard to get proper information and it's hard to learn, which is the position I find myself in. I'm trying to learn what it means to say, you know, energy, technology, and real estate are all colliding. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the role that we can play in affecting positive change? I'm still learning what that means. And, and, I, and I'm with you on that because there's another challenge for us too, is that they're also not in a static sphere. They're also living in a system that itself is really changing. Right. So you need to think about energy and technology and real estate coming together while the literal ground on which real estate is being built may be very different in 40 years. You, know, you, deal with an, you, know, you deal in real estate with an asset lifetime, 80 years or a century in some cases. 
that may look very, very different <laughs> at the tail end than it does right now. So right. how do you know how do we think about these things in that time frame? And one of the challenges is that there obviously there is no data about the future. So we have to have uh, me as a as an analyst and a commentator, and probably you too as an investor, a, a thesis, like an operate a set of operating assumptions that guide us in looking at that future. And that's it's a challenge because you know there's only so much information you can feed into it. Yeah, it's interesting to think about just you know, real estate and, and infrastructure, you know, these are industries where functional obsolescence is a real thing, but it's a very long dated thing. Meaning, you know, the, the companies that have taken stances on you know, very positive stances on sustainability and energy efficiency, some of them are, you know, half as young as the buildings they're operating in, right? So right. the decisions made by the builders of those buildings are having consequences for firms that are now taking these progressive stances and that they have to almost earn their way out of. So that's one of the interesting things about real estate is it has such long-term consequences and it's so interconnected to the fabric of an economy. Um, yeah. I mean, from, from my perspective, like the, 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 the energy lens would be the financial lifetime of something is 20 years, yeah. right? The functional lifetime is probably 40 if you really crank it, you can probably get it to 60. But I would imagine the building lifetime begins, like the, the functional building lifetime begins at the tail end of that. And it makes your replacement cycle really challenging, I'm sure, as you look at places that are already relatively mature. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I just think about like a ground lease, right? Like a ground yeah. lease is when, when you lease ground in say a city like Miami, yeah. you typically lease that ground for 99 years, right? So. Right. You know, you, you never had to think about the fact that that might be seafloor, right? In fifty, right. and um, it's just it's changed the real estate business so much. But switching back to a little bit to the, the moment in time where we're talking, which is we're both working from home, um, we're both not traveling a lot, we're not really coming nope. into the office, and I think the world has experienced, at least momentarily, um, a reduction in pollution. Um, right but it seems to be temporary and it might be pretty transient. So I'm curious, like, do you think that, you know, seeing the effect of a 20% reduced economy and the effect that has on the world around us, is that going to have a long-term impact on sustainability, you think? You know, it, it's, it makes a, a potentiality much more visible at the very least, right? I, I remember a photo series from downtown LA you know, when there was basically no vehicle particulate emissions and people are like, wow, like, is this what it's going to look like? Is this what the future could look like? So it, it makes these things much more tangible, I think. The issue is that um, we, do need, we do need economic activity at the same time. But what I, think, what I think will be really interesting to see is what doesn't rebound. Like, I think we could have a huge rebounding in vehicle traffic and we're likely to, but an increasing amount of that can be electrified. Right, so you you know you could have you could have this weird way all of the disadvantages of congestion, with none of the point source issues of pollution. Within uh, within the home, I think actually you may see people start to make decisions that they previously were never really thinking about. So uh, I don't know what it's like for you, but like we're utilizing everything at about three x our typical utilization rate because we're here all the time. Right. Like, I don't, we, I'm not going to a restaurant. So every dish that we're washing is being done here, right? Every, you know, the HVAC is running more, the washer and dryer running more. And 
I think it might make people much more conscious of the decisions that they make about what they buy, how long it lasts, uh, how easy it is to upgrade, how efficient it is, and things like that. Um, as a general thing, what we're seeing is there's obviously a kind of rotation of energy demand out of, res out of commercial spaces and into residential. Um, the question is, like, like how is it really going to translate? Like, smart building owners and operators are pretty good at understanding their energy footprint and knowing what to do with it because it's a cost. You know, it's a, it's, it's a different matter for those of us, you know, living here at home. We kind of can't avoid it. We can't make long-term decisions. But hopefully there's some innovative approach that comes in there because I'd, I'd love if somebody could come around and have an offering that says, look, didn't you enjoy, didn't you enjoy the clean air that you had, you know, in, in everything else accepted in March of 2020? Well, like these are the ways that we can return you to normal but preserve that. Like that's the sort of thing that I think people will start offering. And it's not necessarily like just one big, one big technological fix. It may be product service sets. It may be new ways of thinking about the, the way that you consume what you've got, uh, new ways of cycling objects and devices that we use through the home in a more efficient way. So I'm very curious to see how we do. I mean, like I, I do think traffic is going to return. Uh, myself, I, I usually take public transit. I will not be. I'll be on a bike when it when it comes time to go back to the office. Uh, but a lot of people will have to be in, in in a personal car. So they'll see we'll see a lot of rebound effect there. But get back to my beginning of that. The car like the car rebounds, but that doesn't mean that the air pollution has to. Right, right. We get this kind of do over in some ways. Right. Reimagine right. some constructs that were just assumptions before. Right. And thinking about now real estate. Um, you know, as, as we've researched the role that the real estate industry plays in the climate crisis, it's been shocking, <laughs> frankly, to me. Right. Um, you know, the, what we've seen is that real estate and collectively commercial and residential accounts for about 30 uh, percent of all energy consumption, 40 uh, percent yep. of all greenhouse gases and mm -hmm. consumes 40 percent of all raw materials. Like that's just staggering because. Right. I don't typically think or, you know, before starting Fifth Wall, before being in this position, like at the center of real estate and tech, I would never have thought of real estate as an industry. that's an obvious place to look to mitigate the climate crisis. Right. It just wouldn't have seemed intuitive to me. Um, but I'm curious from your perspective as an analyst, yeah. what should the real estate industry be doing to accept that responsibility it has for climate change? It's a, it's a really, really good question because in all of those instances, real estate is still a taker of somebody else's decisions for the most part, right? And like you are the result of the embedded emissions in building materials. You can only use for the, at least historically, the energy that is being generated for you by the grid to which you attach. Um, you know, you, you can only make decisions within the relevant financial lifetimes that you've got available to you and you might have a hard time doing things that are out of the money now, but that might have you know, a decent long-term payback to them. So the first thing I think is, is to, and I'm, I would say make it hedonic, make it something that people want. Uh, certainly Bloomberg has been good about having lead gold or lead platinum buildings everywhere we are. Like I don't think I've ever worked in a non-lead gold building, even, even in Hong Kong where historically that was a bit of a hard sell. They've all been, They've all been something that you could actually upsell. So I think I think that's that's one component of it. Another is to perhaps think about on an accounting basis 
what's the tail risk for not making energy smart decisions now? Like what's, what kind of issues might I be embedding that are going to come back and bite me within my, not, not just the asset lifetime of 80 years, but my own lifetime as an executive? Like what are the things here that are actually potentially anti-fragile in terms of thinking about a potential tax on carbon, right? Or standards for reusing and recycling materials or a full accounting of the embedded carbon in any of the objects that go into our buildings. So I, I think a lot of it has to still live at that kind of thought experiment level. There are some easy things, relatively speaking, which is you could as a, as a big operator only buy renewable energy. You could also do as much stuff on site as you want. You could also allow your, within the bounds of possibility, allow your property, plant, and equipment to be a laboratory for people to do new stuff. And I know that some of your portfolio companies actually look at this. Like, how do you, how do you view a building not just as a consumer, but as a producer of energy? How do you then trade and transact that with other parties? You can also, you can also think about, I guess, um, designing for greater flexibility in the longer run. And again, you probably see this a lot more than I do, but right now you probably deal with operators all over the place who are thinking, well, I've been doing my open plan offices successively larger for the last 30 years. What am I going to do next? Um, I know that I've seen some designs that are around thinking about where, where you have mandates for, say, parking infrastructure. What happens if that mandate goes away and if the, if the demand for the automobile in turn goes away? So essentially building optionality, and I think is a huge part of it. One good thing is that like on an electricity basis, electricity is always getting cleaner. And you can buy clean, you can buy zero carbon electricity from third parties. You can buy increasingly clean electricity from the grid. That's all already well in play. On the other side of things, I think it's, it's a question as to how innovative do you want to be? How, how much can you get customers to support innovation uh, that they have to pay for? And again, I think there is an argument to be made that some tenants would be willing to do that. They're willing to pay more for uh, you know, a healthy building, so to speak, and not just healthy for the individuals, but healthy for what it means for client as well. Interesting, because I, two questions come out of it for me, and I think you're in a very unique position to, to offer perspective. Okay. Um, one was just telling kind of my story of hearing the profound impact of the real estate industry in carbon emissions which was shocking to me. And so as I have spent the last couple of years getting smarter on the space, two things struck me. One was the sense that like real estate as an industry has kind of gotten a free pass in, right. in the press, right? In the yeah. press, in, in, in the, the social media sphere and in the public discourse around climate change. And that I saw more dialogue about whether I should be using a plastic straw or a paper straw right, as being right. mystic of my commitment to sustainability um, and no focus on my house or my building. And, and the most, you know, kind of glaring example of that was uh, I was visiting a few real estate uh, um, offices, their corporate offices, and I saw that they made a note that they were now using paper straws. And I was like, right. you have this 300,000 square foot building and I see nothing in terms of your commitment to reduce energy consumption, this huge building. And the thing that you've done is almost like tokenize that into this Absolutely. small, highly consumery, optical, almost decorative decision. Why has real estate 
skirted public attention, do you think? It's, it's, it's weird because it's both, it's obviously ubiquitous, but it's also invisible. Like we know what a smokestack looks like. We know what tailpipe emissions from a car look like and smell like. You know, um, a sort of climactically healthy building probably doesn't present itself differently to you or I. So I, I think that that's, that's a huge part of it. And the other thing is, is, is the ubiquity, the sort of degree to which this is distributed across everything. Like uh, decarbonizing electricity, there's just not that many power plants in the entire world that generate power. Like you can count every one of them. There's a pretty consistent survey, my colleagues do them, other groups do them, of every big asset in the world that generates power. We have a very good idea of how many cars there are on the road, how many are sold every year. Each car that is sold, you know exactly how much it emits, you know how much it consumes to do X amount of work. But I don't think that there's anybody who could say, you know, out of all of the buildings that we're going to be building right now, they on average use this much energy. Over their lifetime, they're going to use this much and cost that much to the end user. That's a kind of accounting that doesn't come into it. And I, th I think that that's a lot of why they've gotten the pass. I mean, certainly, and, and this was the historical perspective from Hong Kong when I was there. The reason LEED certification was a, was a hard sell is if it raised prices at all for, uh, for tenants, then there was no way to sort of upsell that. There was no way to get into it. And because it was all OPEX for tenants, but it wasn't rent. <laughs> it was sort of like it, did, it, didn't, it didn't factor into the picture. So people didn't tend to line up and say, well, I'm paying this and then the utility bill will be that as well. My total cost per square foot is gonna be X. Or what price can I put on, on wellness? What price can I put on a building that is healthier for me? I do think that that's changing a little bit, but the reason that it's gotten the past is just it's hard to, it's, it's oddly hard to see despite the ubiquity. I think that that's, yeah. that's, that's what I would say. And, and it's interesting that point about measurability because the, the second thing I was gonna ask is when I was learning the space, I would talk to the heads of sustainability at yeah. um, all these real estate companies. And I felt like every conversation would start with, well, we're the industry leader in sustainability. Uh -huh. And then I would hear a series of proof points that seemed inherently unverifiable. We won right. XYZ award. We came in top three in this. And then initially I was impressed and you form this view that, oh, there's all these awards. They, they, they must be kind of have right. this forward sustainability posture. But then when you ask questions, what I recognized was two things. One, most of the awards were pretty easy to get and there was right. no real verifiable information. There was nothing quantitative about it. And the second thing was this weird thing that happened in real estate where ESG started to become conflated with, with, with sustainability at an energy right. meaning right. we were talking about social programs and governance and which are really important, but it's important to also disambiguate them because right. you can measure the carbon footprint of a building. Correct, like that is a measure yes. thing. It's something that you you can measure. Uh, it's actually paradoxically harder to measure than social and governance things. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and in fact, like disambiguation is precisely the way that I would describe the imperative as I see going forward, which is that this is a kind of a grab bag when when 
I would say you could make sustainability a executive vice president level inquiry within a company. If it's a C-suite, if it's board reporting or on the board itself, it probably needs to be finer grained than that. And environment, like you can be, you can be great socially and terribly, terrible environmentally. Um, you could also be good environmentally and terrible from a governance perspective. I, f- I feel like there, there's an, like, like we've, we probably have a need to begin to separate out these domains and make them more relevant. And that will make measuring the environmental aspect of what's sustainable much more, I think, much more relevant because it's not a blended score with things that are all societal goods, but don't really inform each other, right? right. Like one's, one's environmental performance and imperatives probably correlate with pretty highly your social and governance imperatives, but they don't actually inform them at all. Yeah. And so I, I, I think that it would be actually helpful to split that out and start scoring things completely separately on that account. And for companies to then be able to go and say, as an automaker does, we have, you know, we have the lowest emissions per square foot of anybody, right? Like we have, we have whatever other measure you want to, you want to input on that. Like we have set targets for energy intensity in our buildings of X over time, not just, you know, our latest building won a lead platinum award, or we have the most square footage of this. Like, I, I think that there, there's a good opportunity to really be much more fine grained on what people look at and measure and to make these awards to your point much more straightforward the award should be what is your intensity not like what's the cool thing you built yeah yeah that's definitely true and and the other thing is the 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 esg construct seems like such a a broad construct to apply to some different industries so like you take the real estate industry it has a huge impact on energy, right? It's 40% of global energy consumption, but it doesn't employ a lot of people. So of course it's still important that it focus on the S and G part of S and G, but it's quite different than a staffing firm, which has a much lower E component, but it's much more important that they focus on the S and G. And I think that conflation exercise has almost alleviated it feels like some of the pressure on the real estate industry to be quantitative in their reporting and, and to focus on those, those, those measures of intensity that you were referring to. So, yeah, like the, the, it's funny. Like I, I, I know a decent amount about the world of ESG, but I, I tend to talk in much more definitive terms around reporting, and those are much more on risk framework than anything. So I deal much more with things like the, this is a very long name here, but the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which is basically, are you incorporating risk of climate change into your business? Are you disclosing it in a rigorous and consistent mechanism? Uh, Are you putting it into your quarterly reports, your annual report? Are you prepared to have people measure you on it? Like, that, that's the sort of thing that I think in future is going to be much more useful. To, and, and I think maybe in real estate, that the downside risk aspect may be pretty compelling, which is like, what, what overhang have you created for yourself if you are not thinking about lowering your intensity, if you're not thinking about climate change, things like that. And, and you know, focusing a, a bit on now going back to work, right, which is a lot right. of where um, we've spent time with our, our corporate investor. Sure. Um, there's a lot of ways to reimagine what going back to work can mean or going back to a restaurant can mean. And, and you, you mentioned this a bit with respect to transportation, but 
what are the opportunities for real estate owners to use this return to work as an opportunity to introduce practices or policies or technologies that can have a long-term positive impact on their commitment to sustainability? I would say start with measurement, right? Like you, like you knew what happened before, you now are setting a new baseline and you can watch incrementally what, what changes are being effectuated as you return people to work. Like what has, what do you need to start thinking about in terms of air handling in particular? That's going to be a huge thing when we return to work, right? Like if, if it turns out that having a highly efficient contemporary HVAC is actually horrific in terms of potentially spreading an aerosolized coronavirus around, well, you are going to have to do something else. What's the energy impact of that going to be? Like, if we're not running huge HVACs everywhere in every big building, we're doing something different. What, 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 what change from baseline have we got and what are we able to measure as we, as we come out of that? How are we going to think about uh, packetizing people's consumption of, of energy in spaces that are not fully occupied? I think that's going to be really interesting because what we tend to have... Packetizing? So I'm thinking we, we tend to have like a binary it's on or off right like if, if i work in if i work in the 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 bloomberg offices you work late at night all the lights go off at a certain hour and then if i get up to move around the entire place lights up so it, it's a, it's a good thing it's it's sensor driven which is good and it's automated but the uh the sort of modulation between on and off is there is none right so it's either well nat sitting at his desk on a floor for 400 and if I haven't moved for a half an hour, they all go off. The minute I get up, the entire floor lights up. Like there, there's, a, there's an inefficiency there that really could be, could be better managed. So I, I think that we, we should, we'll probably need to start measuring on an individualized basis what, what the building means or what people mean for the building in terms of energy and environmental impact and footprint. Um, what things, you know, what inefficiencies, what consumption can you bleed out if the building is never going to be above 40% capacity for a couple of years? That sort of thing I think is going to be really, really interesting opportunity to think about how you automate systems within the building and how you hopefully in a good, positive way, you measure things and maybe make people want to be like, hey, I had the least footprint, even though I was in the office the most amount of time. Yeah. And, and the other thing that, that's interesting that we kind of have a, I think a, a new precedent, a new construct to approach is this, this almost chain of accountability, which right. there are some parallels between the, the COVID crisis and the climate crisis. And if you look at like a city, there were rules and regulations that were set by the local jurisdiction, the mayor. Um, and then the building could make a decision on whether to keep certain tenants open, keep the whole building open. They had purview over what happened inside their building. And then the individual tenants could make decisions about their workforce. Um, and so right. there was this kind of top-down jurisdictional management. Um, and I think we're now all arbitrating what are the right lines and did we do it right and how can we do it better? But climate change and sustainability are happening happen in kind of slower motion, right? And right. There's an interesting dynamic if you look at cities like New York and Los Angeles, where there are these new carbon neutrality laws that are set by the city. You can't move a building. So a building owner has a decision to make, which is do they commit to adhering to these standards? Um, do they make retrofitting decisions? Do they look for new technologies to deploy the asset? But then there's another layer of accountability, which is the tenant, right? Because 
when we say real estate consumes all this energy, what it really means is that the tenants, the people using right. the buildings, are consuming the energy, right? And the economy happens indoors, as someone said to me a while back, and I think is right. a good construct to look at in terms of why we consume and why real estate consumes so much energy. How would you improve the chain of accountability from public official to real estate owner to tenant in terms of energy consumption? That's, it's a good question. I mean, the, the, in, in a sense, the, the public official actually has the least accountability. Having made, having made the law, which is oftentimes a very blunt instrument, and I know particularly the case of New York, New York City has probably infuriated quite a lot of major, uh, major land, you know, uh, landlords and operators. So you can set it and you're like, well, you have to do with it. <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's your problem. Um, I, I, think that, I think that there should be probably better dialogue between these, between these cases to, to allow people to be like, look, I understand that it's a challenge, but let's assist along the way with certain things, right? I, I think the best way to do that is to probably financialize the challenges that need to happen, right? Um, it's, it is to an extent an unfair expectation to say, I'm asking you to make an out of money decision by fiat and you can either eat it on your bottom line or you can stick it to your tenants, but either way you have to do it. Like that strikes me as something that's a little bit unfair. Uh, the way that the way in the energy sector, the analog to this has always been uh, some kind of concessions within the world of finance that have that have lowered the cost for doing that. And that's historically been tax based, which, again, real estate is probably pretty familiar with. But saying, listen, these are things. This is a societal decision that we're going to be making. We make it as a policymaker in order to make it palatable to you. Here are the financial instrumentations available to do that. Right. Like so let us let us let us allow you to use bonding capability to do something with it. Like let's, let's work, especially if we're going to be approaching zero lower bound interests for God knows how long, like let's, let's use the, this, this gift of cheap capital to allow you to do these changes. So if you're making these improvements, uh, we, will, we will enable this, that, and the other extra dispensation and rating uh, or lower debt service coverage ratio or something like that. Um, and, then, and then I think, with the, the the next chain of accountability from sort of from the uh, from landlord and building operator and owner to the consumer, it's probably competitive. Like like we're going like we're 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 saying that we're doing this as actively as possible. Like we here's our here's our rollout. We we can commit not just now to this building, but commit on a sort of portfolio basis. You know become a tenant with us. And over time, this is, this is the path that we promise to get you to, right? right? And I think part of that has an element of selling a perpetual improvement as well, because you'll be, you'll be able to inhabit spaces that are probably better, better to inhabit anyways, right? Like they're, as, they, as they get fixed up from an energy intensity perspective, they're probably being fixed up in other ways as well. Like from in terms of in terms of air quality, airflow, uh, natural light, things like that. All of those things should be helping along the way. So I guess that's how I would, I would, if possible, knit those things together. Yeah, it creates certainly a more nuanced approach to um, how to deal with some of these fines, right? Right, that, right. That right. Owners are now confronting. And I think the position that a lot of real estate owners find themselves in is they're kind of getting it on all sides, right? So Absolutely. There's, there's the regulators that, as you said, are establishing almost by fiat that this is what you have to do, right? If you want to have a building in my city, 
these are the rules you have to play by. And now there's this new form of real estate tax, effectively, right. the capital market side, um, which I think modulates a little better to your point, right? right? Like the, there is this sense that you can preferentially access capital, um, lower insurance premiums, um, lower costs of capital on the debt side, to the extent you have lower no carbon impact real estate. Right. You're also getting it on the tenant side, which I think is, is really compelling, um, in terms of tenants saying, we want to take this posture, so we right. want the space from you unless you adhere to these standards. But then the, the third is actually the economic imperative, meaning it actually is better. It does lower the cost of occupancy, right. what real estate is fundamentally premised on, right? Which is yep. utilizing space for some commercial activity. It lowers the cost of that if you can if you can lower the corresponding amount of energy required to use that space for industrial use for office use for home use for multifamily use for retail use so but the, but the tr yeah but i think that and this was an energy challenge as well the trickiest part of that though is that it's still like you could lower opex but you had to you had to make a capex allocation first right like you couldn't you know what I mean? you, you can't lower your opex with just opex you have to make right. a capital allocation um uh, john brown who ran bp for years uh gave a speech ages ago now and he talked about the, the decarbonization challenge in energy being fundamentally about a move from CapEx, uh, from OpEx to CapEx, right? So, you know, uh, if you, you know, if you buy a, if you buy, build a power plant, it costs $500 million and it will burn $2 billion worth of fuel over its lifetime. If you were to build a, an equivalent wind or solar plant at the time, you're basically having to front load all of that OpEx into the CapEx. Right. And in return, you have an operating cost of almost nothing. But ma making that switch is challenging and capital markets can solve that in a way. But also, and this is something that like, this is where real estate has an advantage, I would say, over electrons that have no hedonic, you know, capability whatsoever, is that they're better, like they're, they're a better building to be in. And, and I'm curious, I'm, I would imagine uh, your contacts, executives, LPs even, are probably looking ahead to the return to work in terms of how can they outcompete. Yeah. Right, like you know, how how can you how can you outcompete for uh, with abundant space and scarce and scarce tenants? How are you going to compete to bring people in? Yeah, and that kind of, that kind of commitment might actually be helpful for that. And I think you're exactly right. Like real estate owners have had to reconceptualize their role and their relationship with tenants. Meaning, you know, real estate was this asset class where it was seen as a commodity. Take office. Right. Right. The yeah. thing that mattered in office space was what's the price per square right. foot and the location. That was it. Right. Those were the two variables. Right. And then as offices have become more amenitized and as buildings have become further digitalized and as we have smarter buildings and differentiated offerings, tenants have demanded more. And a part of that demand absolutely relates to sustainability. But right. what's interesting is to your point, you, you made this comment about CapEx, right? Going from right. OpEx to CapEx. Well, that seems hard in industries that are operational businesses. The real estate industry right. is a CapEx business, right? When you build a building, usually you don't have income <laughs> coming in before right. you do. You just spend right. a lot of CapEx, you build the building, you lease it, you generate a return on it. So the real estate industry, both because of its long-term mindset inherently, you typically own these assets for five to 20 years and the assets last up to a hundred in Europe, hundreds right. of years. Right. Um, it's fundamentally a CapEx business. And so to some extent, it seems like the mechanization 
of and, and, and the modulation of how you provide the incentives for long-term investments that have the effect of negative carbon or negative energy cost. Right. It's very achievable in the real estate industry. It seems like a place where you really can achieve a lot because you have that mindset among CEOs. So I got a question for you back on that, which is how do you convince people who are are typically making, you know, making a CapEx allocation now with a 40 to 80 year, a 20 to 50 year life for themselves as investors and a 40 to 80 or 100 year life as an asset. How do you convince them to design for optionality? Like how do you convince people to design for look? The history of these kind of technologies is that they get cheaper and better on these paths. Like, so maybe you need to, you need, you need to make a little bit of flexibility decisions so that you can incorporate new things over time. Like, like in, uh, you, you can do that in certain parts of like the energy system. Like you can overbuild transmission knowing that over time it'll fill up, but there's, but that's also because you start paying, you start charging people for it the minute it's built, not the minute it's operated. Uh, that's the, the the delightful the delightful way of working with public utility commissions, but how do you, but how do you think about it and saying like you know listen I I should probably expect that lighting every bit of lighting in this place is going to be different in fifteen years, but rather than have to do a like down to the bones retrofit, how do I design expecting things to come out and get better? So how do you like how do you find your network thinking about stuff like that? How do you convince people to think? to think for optionality, even in these CapEx businesses? It's an amazing and impossible to answer question. But I'll <laughs> give you some of the, 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 the frames that we look at it through, because we look at it not just from a sustainability standpoint, we think about it with respect to all technology, because right. the decision for any real estate owner today is you build a building, right? You're building a particular asset. And we've been uh, kind of in the first 10 years of probably what is a hundred year secular tailwind behind digitizing more aspects of a building. So just take right. an example of when you get up in the Bloomberg office, you know, an office that can, that can handle 400 people, all the lights turn on. Well, that's because there's one sensor that's probably looking at right. a certain area of the floor. What there probably should be is 400 sensors, right? Right. Directly at every workstation. But really, if you play that out to its logical conclusion, anything that moves inside mm-hmm. a building definitionally should have a sensor on it. Every right. hinge, every turnstile, every elevator, every button. And so the challenge, I think, for, for real estate owners is that there's been this mindset of when I build a building, I control everything inside of it. Right. That's the mindset that the real estate industry has. Mm-hmm. And it's different um, if you start to think about that building as... I'm building a mainframe computer and I'm going to have to swap out different components of it. But in so doing, I am going to lose some amount of control right. what happens inside my asset. And so that's true, I think, with respect to smarter buildings, um, because there's initially been this, this mindset that's been hard to overcome for real estate owners that I need to control the whole thing. So in right. addition to owning the building, I need to own the data. And I need to own the places and the repositories for that data. And I need to own the automation of that data. And all of that data becomes my unfair advantage in my product offering to the market. Right. But that's clearly not what's going to happen. (laughs) Meaning that's that's a little bit in the vein of where where you started the conversation. That's building it all yourself. And today you can rely on these precedent transactions. So a huge part of what we do 
is work with real estate owners to say that your building is going to get smarter. You're going to be able to digitize more aspects of that building's functioning. You're going to have to collect enormous amounts of data to do that, but you're a real estate company, not a data company. Right. And in so doing, you have to let go of some amount of control. So I, I use that as an example to answer your question because I think the exact same thing is true with respect to energy and yeah. data around energy consumption, which is you really want to build a shell, right? That provides a frame, the, the functional building, with the shell of the building, but inside it's totally modular. It's modular with respect to the energy components, the lighting components, the heating components, how the floor plates are designed. And that is, I think, going to be a slow shift for the real estate industry. It's been so like on the industrial, the sort of industrial scale side of energy, it's it's the the as a service shift, which has been happening along the way. Right. And, and, it's, and it's challenging because a lot of companies saying like, well, I, I want to control all my own data or I need to control all my own data because of X, right? But, are, but as you mentioned, are they better at it? Like, like it, it, are you inherently going to develop your own building OS you know, to, to best do this? Um, or are you only able to learn from your portfolio, but not from others? So, you know, we've seen, we've seen these as a service options come in for all kinds of industrial equipment over time. Uh, and, I, and I know that it enters into heating and cooling uh, infrastructure for buildings as well. But like the building operator too, it's like my service to you is that I will always be the best building. Right. You know, my, service to you, my service to you is that like I will be improving over time as opposed to 15 years from now when you may or may not be here, you're due for a lighting retrofit. Like right. it's a different, it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of pitch, but it's the kind of thing that could have legs on it if you do it right. Yeah. And it's, it's just a, it's a little different than operating companies because buildings are, they're, they're definitionally monopolistic, right? Yeah. When there's a building on a particular square block, there can be no other building where that building is, right? <laughs> it is the only building that can occupy that space and you can't move it. You can't move it to a, di you know, a different city and lease it in the same way. So there, there's, a, there's a sense of control that comes with real estate around owning property and owning land. And I think that mindset, that mindset has shifted into owning data. Right. And it's led to a collapsing of the dichotomy between hardware and mm -hmm. software. Right. Because buildings are hardware. Um, yep. there's, you know, there are a lot of hardware. But the software can totally be changed. Um, and some of the smaller features of the, of the, the, the kind of hardware fixtures, the lighting fixtures, the water cooling systems, all those can be changed as well. And so I think real estate owners are increasingly letting go, but they're still holding on to that. Um, and that's really a lot of the friction in, in this collision between tech and real estate. Right. But, but in between there is the customer relationship. Like, you know, and that's the one that uniquely the building, the building owner can control, right? Is that like only the, like the, the, the tenant is probably not going to make a hundred percent hardware and a hundred percent software decisions, right? So if you, if you find the way to meet, that's also where they, where you meet the customer and where you, where you control and engage that relationship over time. And, and a lot of the customers are driving this, sure. these retrofits, meaning they're right. saying, I want a keyless entry system. Yep. Because I want to understand how my employees are engaging with, you know, my office that happens right. to be in your building and you can't accommodate me. So, you know, building owners are reacting to that by saying, well, I need to have a more 
open architecture, a more open right. mindset to how I can adopt technology that allows tenants to get the data they want, me to get the data I want, but I can't totally control it within my four walls, right? right. It's that sense of control that, that is, it's, uh, it's hard to get rid of, I think, for the real estate industry. It, it is, and it was super hard in, in, the, in, in, in certainly in the power and in the industrial businesses as well. But if it, if it allows you perpetual optionality, I think that there's something to be said for it. Yeah. If it allows you to to continually redefine your engagement with your with your tenants, there's probably real value to it. Yeah. But it is a hard sell, and especially I'm sure it's the case where people are like, look, I'm a builder, I build buildings, <laughs> right? Like I'm you know I'm I'm a builder, I'm a landowner, I I do this for a living. That's the main thing that I see. That's my identity. It's not a sort of experience manager for a rotating cast of people that may be in the building. Right. And, but to be honest, it's, it's, it's a broader trend and we could probably talk about this for another hour, which is right. that what's happened because of this collision between real estate and technology. And also because of these increasingly consumer like demands from tenants in terms of, I want to understand how my employees are using the office space. I want to understand my own energy consumption better it's forcing real estate owners to provide that kind of service right. to them and that kind of product to them. And what that's doing is it's favoring larger, more institutional landlords mm -hmm. and not favoring the one-off landlords. And the real right. estate industry has for a long time been a highly granular industry, right. right? Most buildings are owned by families or individuals. They're not owned by publicly traded companies and these large, super well operationalized REITs. Right. Um, but that's changing. So real estate is institutionalizing as an asset class as the underlying product offering is changing because of all these external forces like the, you know, the, the drive towards sustainability. Um, yep. But I think that actually is a, a net positive for what we've been talking about. In this sense, greater institutionalization a, provides the right incentives. A, a thousand percent. Because also the, <clears throat> the increasing expectation of measurement, reportability, reporting, and accountability is, is, is something that only the biggest companies will be able to take on as well. Yeah. Which is to say like, okay, well, I'm like, I've got a better disclosure score of my environmental risk than my neighbors do. Right. Or if you, if you as a, if you as a company have to do your own reporting on climate risk, and obviously that includes the portfolio of buildings that you, that you are a tenant in. Well, you need to get that information from somebody. And, and it turns out if you can get it from a big REIT because they do this themselves, then that's actually, there's a, there's a nice matchup right there. There's a virtuous cycle of work, which is, oh good, well I, like, I can go to this company and when they say our carbon intensity per square foot is X, I can just plug that right into my own disclosure that I have to make when, when investors are asking me, what kind of environmental impacts are you making? So yeah. yeah, this is absolutely a case where like bigger, bigger works better in that sense. Certainly in real estate. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, now we've covered a lot of ground. We uh, have. <laughs> so um, I'd love to continue the dialogue. And, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed just learning uh, these, these kind of new approaches to the industry. And I'd love to have this conversation again. Anytime, Brendan. It was a real pleasure. Awesome. Well, thank right. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. 
To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.